Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us today attorneys Jack Pierce and David McMahon from the law firm of Barge Woolen LLP with offices in California, New York, and London. Jack Pierce is the senior litigation partner in Barger and Woolen's San Francisco office. He has more than 30 years of experience and litigation and trial experience for insurance and non-insurance clients. He has been a proctor in the Maritime Law Society for more than 25 years and involved in a wide range of insurance matters. He also defends corporations and their officers and directors in cases involving complex litigation and financial claims. David McMahon is the managing partner of the firm's San Francisco office, He has extensive maritime-related litigation experience, having worked on disputes relating to the construction of the world's largest sailing catamaran and the largest pleasure yacht ever constructed in the United States. Mr. McMahon has been involved in the Gulf oil spill litigation, as well as numerous complex personal injury and death claims governed by federal maritime law and related federal statutes and international conventions. We're very pleased to have you both with us today. We're pleased to be here, John. Our topic today is insurance issues that may face the cruise line and travel industries, particularly after the most recent episode with Carnival Cruise. And Brendan Noonan will lead off today with our first question. Uh, David, the cruise industry has received a lot of bad publicity of late. Are there financial considerations for passengers who attempt to opt out of future trips? Yes, I think so. I think our listeners should be aware that carriers uh, like Carnival Cruise Lines, uh, just like most other cruise line operators, often include in their tickets and other contracts of carriage contractual time bars, choice of forum, limitations on liability for uh, the operators, and other provisions relating to choice of law, as well as the ability to cancel the cruise. And those provisions are typically contained in the contract of carriage. I would think that if a passenger were attempt to opt out from a cruise that they purchased, based on things that had happened on another cruise ship, perhaps even with another cruise line, that the cruise operator would have difficulty with that and probably would reject the ability to cancel, probably not without uh, some very extensive penalty. Jack, what's the risk of personal injury suits being filed, particularly by older passengers or those most affected by adverse conditions? Well, Brendan, there's always a risk of uh, personal injury actions being filed by older passengers, and I think that uh, older adults compromise a substantial percentage of cruise line passengers. And because of their relative fragility, you know, they also compromise a substantial percentage of plaintiffs who traditionally sue cruise lines. But in the case of the Carnival Triumph, you know, the inconveniences resulting from the backup of the vessel's sewer system and the odors and, you know, without any actual physical injury wouldn't necessarily be actionable in tort. Now, I've been following the reports on this, and the, the press did report that there was one passenger airlifted because of a delicate medical condition, but that condition wasn't disclosed. There may be others, but we haven't received any reports on that. But as Dave has mentioned, any personal injury lawsuit would be subject to limitations in the contract of carriage, which is in the ticket. And frequently, these limitations limit any personal injury lawsuits to a single venue, and they usually must be filed within one year of the date of injury. 
Uh, David, can you comment on the types of insurance a cruise line must have, and will this change, in your opinion, moving forward? A major cruise ship like the Carnival Triumph is typically insured by a protection and indemnity policy issued by a protection and indemnity club. And these clubs are mutual organizations that are typically located in the United Kingdom or other overseas locales. And the P&I structure is part historical, and it also may bring benefits to the uh, vessel owners with respect to tax and regulatory issues. And the P&I policy would be the one that would respond to claims for personal injury or death or uh, if someone was claiming that they were delayed or harmed by events like what took place on the Carnival Triumph. Another type of coverage that a major cruise line typically has is business interruption loss. And in the Carnival Triumph situation, one would think that that would be the major claim that would be made. And a business interruption policy would provide coverage for the time that the cruise line uh, ship was, was out of service, during the time it was adrift at sea, and possibly during the time that it was tied up at the dock during the investigation. There may be some limiting provisions or exclusions in the coverage that might come into play there. The third type of coverage that we would typically see is the hull and machinery coverage, and typically that would be the first-party coverage. Under the typical hull policy, the vessel is insured against so-called enumerated perils, and one of those would be fire. The reports from the Carnival Triumph that the difficulties began with a fire, so they might have a uh, plausible claim for insurance coverage there. These types of insurance go back you know, hundreds of years I'm not expecting to see any great change in the type of coverage that is available or sought by cruise line operators based on what has happened in the Carnival Cruise Line situation or related cases. Jack, are there any evolving cases you've heard about, and what insurance-related issues is the industry preparing for? You know, Brendan, I think just focusing on the Carnival Triumph, so there are a lot of issues that I think are coming to the forefront, which will serve to illustrate the kind of issues that the cruise line addresses when these kind of incidents occur. As you know, there's been a lot of significant publicity as to the breakdown of the Carnival Triumph, and it's been a bit of a public embarrassment for Carnival. And not surprisingly, there have been a number of personal injury class action lawsuits filed by lawyers all over the country, actually, who have taken this opportunity to file such suits. But Carnival and other cruise lines are very sensitive to publicity, and they've acted promptly, first of all, to address the refund issue and have offered passengers the option of booking in another cruise as guests of Carnival. Now, this kind of an action will cut down on the number of passengers who will opt to join these classes in class action cases. Once you've eliminated the contract issue and the refund issue, then you are left with whatever personal injuries these passengers may have. And as you know, for to uh, proceed with a class action, there's got to be a commonality of issues and commonality of damages. And I think by acting quickly and eliminating some of the uh, potential contract claims and reimbursement claims, Carnival has done a good job uh, basically addressing these class actions at the outset. David, from an insurance standpoint, are there any particular states most impacted by this? I would think that not particular states, because the type of insurance that is purchased by a vessel owner or a cruise line like this, it's uh, really national and or international in scope. 
And in fact, the applicable law that applies to disputes between passengers and a cruise line operator for personal injuries or death would be federal maritime law. And the reason that federal maritime law applies in these situations is there is a desire to have uniformity of application and not have different laws apply if the vessel were to dock in New York or New Jersey versus California. And that uniformity is brought about by the Admiralty Clause in the U.S. Constitution and uh, federal case law that suggests that there is uniformity of application of law in situations where we both have interstate or international commerce. So for that reason, I don't think any of the particular state will be impacted by this, and there is a very large body of federal maritime law that would apply to the resolution of any disputes. Jack, have the cruise issues and insurance litigation impacted other types of leisure travel as well? And what do you foresee down the line? Well, I think kind of piggybacking what Dave uh, had to say, you know, most both airline and cruise line contracts have provisions in their contracts of carriage, which limit liability of the airlines or the cruise ships. And these limitations must be reasonable, and the passengers must also be put on notice of the existence of these limitations. With respect to cruise lines, the enforceability of these contractual limitations are, again, governed by federal law. There's a statute, 46 U.S.C., section 30509, which ensures that all such limitations be uh, reasonable and not unconscionable. So the courts and consumer activists for both cruise lines and airlines are alerted to challenge these provisions when they believe that they don't give passengers due process or a fair opportunity to address uh, the complaints. But I do think that as this case progresses and people begin to realize what the limitations are, I think you'll find that there'll be some scrutiny of the limitations contained in Carnival's passenger ticket. Well, David and Jack, thank you both for joining us today. It's our pleasure to be here. That was David McMahon and Jack Pierce from the law firm of Barger Willen LLP with offices in California, New York, and London. Special thanks to Brendan Noonan from our communications team and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast at ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message. Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year 
year-long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 